Tonight, justice is served. The food bank and the city's legal community join forces to feed over one million hungry New Yorkers. Then Muhammad Ali floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee in the ring. But what was he like at home? His daughter talks about growing up with the greatest as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. We're facing a food crisis here in New York City with over 1 million New Yorkers currently experiencing food insecurity. For the past 40 years, Food Bank for New York City has been working to end hunger in the five boroughs by providing healthy meals to New Yorkers and by attempting to address the structural issues that contribute to food insecurity. And joining us now with more on the Food Bank's various efforts to combat food insecurity and win the larger war against hunger are Leslie Gordon, President and CEO of Food Bank for New York City, and Larry Stromfeld, member of the Food Bank's Board of Directors and the founder of one of its key fundraising initiatives, Justice Served. They're with us as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. Welcome, both of you. It's, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you for having us. Delighted to be in your company. Thank you. So, Leslie, uh, before we get into the work that both of you do uh, at and for uh, the food bank, let's talk about food insecurity itself. What is food insecurity and just how bad is the problem in New York City? Sure. So, Raphael, New York City's got a population of about 8.4 million people, give or take. And about 1.6 million of our neighbors across the five boroughs of our great city really struggle to get enough nutritious food to eat, to, to live their best life and to go through really daily activities, kids to be able to be at their productive best to learn in school, moms and dads to have the requisite amount of, of energy to go to work during the day, older Americans to go through their days. And so at Food Bank for New York City, we stand in the gap and at the ready 365 days a year to make sure that access to good nutritious food and culturally relevant food at that is available on nearly every street in nearly every neighborhood across the five boroughs. And when we talk about food insecurity, it's really an umbrella term. If you're to unpack that uh, just really quickly, it's really a set of dimensions that cause someone to not have enough nutritious food to eat. And so it's underemployment, it's unemployment, could be mental health issues, general health issues, housing challenges. Um, there's really a, a, a continuum of things that cause someone to find themselves online at what we call a local food pantry or a soup kitchen, a shelter, a senior center, could be uh, access at a, at a college or university. Interestingly enough, 30 to 40% of our 
higher education students across the United States are food insecure, don't have enough good nutritious food. But why are so many people, the big question, why are so many people in New York City? I mean, those are the reasons why people become food insecure. Why are there so many of them in New York City? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about it is, is it, it if I think about the last couple of years during the, the pandemic era that um, shone a bright light on this stubborn problem of food insecurity, it makes it seem as though it, it didn't exist before COVID. And the fact of the matter is, is that a really high number, close to 20% of our neighbors in this great city have been struggling for decades. Um, at the heart of it, it's a systems problem. It's lack of access and equity uh, to resources that some populations have. Uh, it's laws it's underemployment. More recently, we're struggling with high rates of inflation. Uh, and so, for example, the cost of food has gone up pretty precipitously, almost 20% um, year on year. I don't know if you're a, a grocery store shopper, but if you've gone out and you happen to like eggs, it's a great source of protein. Of to buy a carton of eggs these days is about, you know, could be as much as eight bucks. Um, rent has gone up. Uh, since December of 2022, rent has gone up just about 15%. There, so there's this convergence of very stubborn issues that are coming at people who are already struggling on, on low incomes. Okay. And it's important to contextualize who we're talking about when we're talking about food insecure. We can tell you about the numbers and we can talk to you about the pounds of food. At the end of the day, these are our neighbors. It's older Americans on limited incomes, it's moms and dads who are out there every day, have full-time jobs, sometimes two and three jobs. It's college students who are on a fabulous journey to self-actualize and live their best life, who don't have enough access to food. It's kids in our school system who when school is not in session, don't necessarily have access to three solid meals a day. Larry, I promise I'm going to get to you in one second, but a, a couple of more questions. Absolutely. Uh, uh, for Le Leslie, that you, you talk about inflation. Isn't the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, what used to be the food stamp program, isn't that indexed to inflation? You know, the, the SNAP program really hadn't been adjusted until uh, the recent pandemic era in decades, in fact. Um, and in some ways, it's tied to uh, minimum wage and what was considered uh, living income for a family, which is about $24,000 a year. Imagine living in New York City on, on $24,000 a year. Um, and it's supplemental, as indicated in the name. So the intention there is not for it to fill every need for three meals a day. And, and you talked about uh, uh, the COVID pandemic. That's when you came in. You came in at the height of the COVID pandemic when things were really bad, especially for someone with your responsibilities. Um, how does how, how does our situation now compare to when it was at the height of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, uh, you're right. I did. I landed here in March of 2020. Um, the good news is, is that food banks are made for moments like this. Um, we're at the ready. We're trained to respond to disasters as we did in 9-11, Hurricane Sandy. So New Yorkers can count on us when they're needed. And we rose uh, very quickly 
to incrementally increase. In 2021, we distributed more than 140 million meals across you New York doubled. State. You, you doubled it. In your tenure, you doubled the yeah. amount of meals I read. Wow. We did, we did. Um, What is very unfortunate, um, and this is where uh, folks like Larry and the incredible campaign that he helps to mobilize every year with Justice Serve comes in. Um, What's incredible is that the need is not receding. So um, it more than doubled during the pandemic era. And the numbers of people who are online and visiting our food pantries and soup kitchens and shelters across our great city are not receding. In fact, they remain at a pandemic era high, frankly, related to all the things we just talked about. So high rates of inflation, rising costs of, of rent and housing, rising costs of food. It's it's a dire situation not to be understated. And so uh, we're grateful to folks like Larry and his peers and colleagues across our city in the legal sector who really mobilize themselves once a year to volunteer, to advocate and to donate. So let's talk to Larry to talk about that. You know, Larry, uh, the food bank, among other things, relies on generous donations from individuals and from organizations like your own law firm. First of all, give us the name of your law firm and tell us uh, about its special connection to the food bank. Absolutely. Thank you, Rick. So um, I'm, I'm a partner at the law firm of Kedwalder, Wickersham and Taft. We're a global law firm. We're the oldest continuously run law firm in the United States, founded over 240 years ago. Um, we have a long history of working within our, with the communities in which we uh, work and serve. Um, And our connection with Food Bank goes back to the very beginning. Uh, One of my partners, a great colleague and friend who has since passed on, uh, was one of the founding partners, uh, one of the founding members of Food Bank and helped to organize it as a nonprofit uh, 40 some odd years, 40 years ago. Um, And that was just an indication of uh, the spirit here at our firm and many, many other firms uh, and lawyers throughout the, the city. Uh, to want to be better connected to the communities in which we live. Talk about the initiative that you started, uh, Justice Served. What exactly is it? What does it do? Sure. So um, through through my uh, role here at the firm, uh, and uh, I got to know Food Bank, and at first, uh, you know, I thought it's a wonderful organization and, and made donations and thought, well, this, I just like to support the work these great people are doing. Uh, but then I had an opportunity to volunteer one time at the Bronx Warehouse, and that was a life-changing experience for me. Uh, I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I work here in this office. You see the books, the show, you know, and uh, lawyers are used to being in courtrooms, working with clients and, and, and uh, conference rooms. Uh, and I uh, was given an opportunity to volunteer at the Bronx Warehouse. I went up there with a, a number of my colleagues here, Ked Walter, as well as one of uh, the lawyers from one of our clients. And together we went up there and walked into this 90,000 square foot uh, warehouse, stocked floor to ceiling uh, with food to support uh, and fight hunger in New York City. And it was overwhelming. And what really underscored it for me was that uh, the person who was giving us the tour of the warehouse told us that what we were looking at was really enough just to feed New York for a few days. 
And I thought, I can't go back to my day job and just keep doing what I was doing with that kind of thing going on around me uh, in a city that I love so much. I grew up I grew up in and around New York, and I just wanted to make a difference. Well, um, you know, Larry, others would have had would have gone in there or seen the same things you do and would not have reacted. It would not have had that kind of effect on them as it did on you. I, why did it have that effect on you? Uh I, I, it was. I think it was the impact of the need and the and realizing that there are some great people uh, at Food Bank who are working day in and day out to 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 serve this need, and I and you know as much as I've uh, grown up here and love New York, I just felt it's something that I wanted to do to make a difference. But I'm a lawyer, and this is what I this is my day job. This is what I do. So. Um, you know, so I, I thought long and hard, how could I make a difference doing what I do? Uh, and I said, you know, I know lawyers. I have lots of clients. I know lots of people who would feel the same way that I feel if I gave them a chance to see what this is all about. And that's what we've been doing. And really, you know, New York is a great city. There are a lot of great, uh, there are a lot of great populations and industries and communities in New York. And that's one of the things we love about New York. And there are many lawyers here in New York. And for those of us who feel the same as I do, this, you know, food is a very fundamental yeah. part of life. And a lot of us just react to uh, and can relate to food insecurity on a very visceral level. Yeah. And I have just found that when you give people a chance to see what Food Bank does, to work directly with the people on the front line and and provide something that has such a meaningful impact to them, it, it just is a, it's a kind of experience that, uh, you know, it makes you feel good and, you know, makes you feel good about giving and you get more out of it than you give. Uh, so, Leslie, we have less than two minutes left, believe it or not. Um, the Food Bank provides things other than food. Right. It provides um, it helps New Yorkers navigate our complex tax system. Um, what did it get involved in that? So we've had a long legacy and proud commitment to making sure that not only did people have good, nutritious food for today, but also to help lift them more permanently out of a position of having to regularly visit a food pantry or a soup kitchen. And so incredibly, as you just shared, um, we're one of the nation's largest tax preparation organizations. Tax season is in full swing at Food Bank for New York City and across the United States. Uh, we facilitatively help low-income New Yorkers prepare their taxes. And you might ask yourself, a food bank and taxes, how does that go together? Uh, and and uh, how that works is that one of the best poverty fighting measures in the United States is something called earned income tax credit. And so we help people take advantage of that wonderful program, which also rewards people for working and uh, families with children. And the average return something about, you know, $1,800 cash, which is transformational. All right, really quickly, we have 30 seconds left. People watching us now are interested, Leslie. What should they do in 30 seconds? Find yourself in our mission at Food Bank for New York City. You can donate, you can advocate, you can volunteer. Visit us at foodbanknyc.org. And of course, law firms and lawyers can can uh, become part of Justice Served. Um, and we'll have to end it there. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the work you do, and thanks for joining us today. Thank Our you pleasure. very much. Athlete, activist, icon, 
the greatest. Former heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali was all of those things. From his childhood in the segregated South to his final fight with Parkinson's disease, Muhammad Ali never backed down. Banned from boxing during his prime because he refused to fight in Vietnam, he became a symbol of the anti-war movement and defender of civil rights. As the greatest, he was a boxer of undeniable talent and courage, and in the ring, only Ali could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. But what was Ali like at home as a father and a husband? The answers can be found in the new book, At Home with Muhammad Ali, a memoir of love, loss, and forgiveness, written by his third youngest child, Hana Ali, and based on 80 hours of voice recordings that a dad left for his daughter. Hana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is really an amazing collection of stories that you were able to tell about your father. And first, I just want to ask you, what was your inspiration to do this book? Oh my gosh, I had a few. So um, there was the situation with my father being, I, I always say that he belonged to the world and I know that people love him and they're mm -hmm. always sharing so many stories about him and asking a lot of questions. A question that we get the most is, what was he like at home? What was he like as a father? You know, was he really that boastful and braggadocious? And you know, so that I wanted to share that side of my father with the world. I wanted to share a lot of the stuff that I was learning um, as I was listening to the audio recordings that he gave me, that he made in the 70s, I learned a lot from those. So I wanted to share that information. I wanted to share my mother's story and um, their their relationship and my relationship with my father. And, and so while this is a book, so obviously we aren't going to hear audio recordings, from right. him, but there are transcripts in there. Right. But what I thought was so interesting was that he, well, maybe not interesting, of course, it would fit with the character that he had the foresight to make some of these audio recordings, that he thought that, you know, it's important to uh, make sure that some of these are preserved for time. Yeah, see, my father, people don't realize this because yeah. how would they know, but he, his greatest, in his mind, his greatest accomplishment was being a father. He loved being a father. He used to always say he's the daddy to the world, you know, so he just <laughs> didn't want to be our father. He wanted to be the world, the world's father, but he, he actually, he, he, he was a homebody, he loved being at home. He could sit in his office for hours at a time and be happy on the telephone talking. And he, he thought that these little fleeting moments that we take for granted were so beautiful and they touched him. And he wanted to preserve that. So it's funny because he knows that though about himself. He's telling me constantly through the tapes and telling us all, you're gonna be so glad I thought of this. Oh, I'm so happy, I'm so history conscious. <laughs> and uh, oh, it's so good that I know to think about this and prepare for the future. And we all wish we had tapes when we were young. I wish I had tapes of myself when we were young. So. I'm doing this because I love you and I want, you know, the life is so beautiful and life is so short and he just wanted to capture those moments that were going to pass. I do want to take a moment for our audience to be able to hear one of them and this is such a precious moment. It's you and your dad singing, this is dedicated to the one I love. Oh yes, I love this one. Uh huh, let's sing, huh? Time for my singing lesson. Ready? Yeah. This is dedicated to the one I love. Each night before you go to bed, my baby. So one of the things that I find so interesting is that oftentimes what little the public knows, particularly about a sports figure, is what we read through the sports press. And was it important for you to make sure that this was a chance to actually show the human being behind the, in some ways, the man that your father was, but also somewhat of the character that he was playing for the press? Yes, because my father, you know, he's always been outgoing and um, he was really great at marketing. He knew how to market himself and sell tickets and that, a lot, that was a large part of what he did. He was also trying to promote black love, you know, self-pride, saying I am the greatest. And 
Um, but he was also very humble. Mm -hmm. So what people don't know is up until his last days, he would just, you know, do people still remember me? You know, he was excited to know he was still making news. And I said, Daddy, are you kidding me? <laughs> people, do they remember you? Yes, they remember you. And, I, and it was genuine. Mm -hmm. So he knew that he was great, but he also was, he never took it for granted. And he was also very humbled by it. And he needed people's love and attention like he needed air to breathe. And he gave that love right back a tenfold, you know. So our door was always opened. Um, it was a normal occurrence to come home and find homeless families there. It was a normal occurrence for him to pick them up and put them in the back of the car. We were, we were eating and he saw someone being refused service. He brought them in and they ate with us, you know? And mm -hmm. so and I'm talking about homeless people that are sleeping on the streets and hadn't had a bath in like God knows how long. Mm -hmm. And he never made a face at them. He would hug them, you know? So, wow. um, I mean, I know this is like graphic, but even when I was a little girl, he made me feel so loved. I mean, I would be five or six years old, pee in the bed. And he would lay right down next to me, give me kisses, like, Daddy, I peed. And he wouldn't get up. You know, he'd just keep oh, laying there hugging me. Yeah. And that's a big deal. So, I mean, yeah, you, no. you felt like you felt so loved. So, I mean, never there was never a time where he would send you away or put you out. And I'm, I was an annoying little girl. So some of those tapes, <laughs> you know, I'm begging him. He's on the phone talking about freeing hostages in Tehran. I, I want some toffee, Daddy. He's like, please shut up. Please be quiet. <laughs> and, oh, please be quiet. And you have my housekeeper or the governess chiming in, Janita. Hey, Mohammed, you want me to come get Hana and get her out of there? And let me know if she's in your way. Okay, I'll let you know. Doesn't call her to come get me. I just got finished disturbing him. And he's still jumped. Give me some toffee, Daddy. Hana, shut up. I'm on the phone. <laughs> so he never sent me away. So I had that feeling and the tapes validated it. It's a feeling that I had. So now I had the evidence. Like, that's why I knew it. I knew that feeling was something. And that was one of the things that, because yeah. so much of the book, it feels almost like going with you through an old family photo album or something. And usually, even when there's some distance for any family member, when you look back at some of those photos, there's, mm -hmm. you know, the memories of this time and this place and, you know, the people that your parents were as they grew as adults. Um, I'm wondering, what was it? I mean, aside from the great toffee right. story, but was there <laughs> anything else that really stood out to you that you were just like, I almost completely forgot about that? Yes. So um, things that I learned too and didn't even know about. Mm -hmm. Like um, I never saw my parents arguing, and I don't remember. I completely blocked out the you know moving and the last nights at the house, all of that. I was ten years old, so mm -hmm. I should have some memory of it. I just remember my, my psychologist at the time, who I was sent to go see because I was struggling with worrying about my father so much. Um, telling me that, how do you feel about your parents' divorce? And I just blinked out after that. So my mother would tell me that later, you know, we came to her, we'd ask her, me and Layla, well, you both like movies, you both like pickles, you know, why do you, why, why can't you get along or be together? There's no memory of them arguing. So they just, you know, my mother grew out of my father and I think wanted to get out on her own. She met him when she was 18, mm -hmm. you know, so she just was coming into her own and she lived a long life with him and he, the infidelities and even though they were good friends. So we discovered the letters that he wrote to her um, in 2012 or 13 and we never she never saw them so um, I learned about that and then um, also as I was coming home with all these newspaper clippings and remembering little bits of history I was learning more and some things were inaccurately recorded and you know reported like it usually happens oh, yeah. so I would go to my mom and we t talked it through so it sort of sort of it was born on its own as I was writing it and I was learning as I was actually writing it, trying to share this story with everyone. So it was, it was very overwhelming and I had to figure out how to tell these three stories cohesively and in a way that would make people interested, mm -hmm. you know, and still not to forget to include me in a memoir that's supposed to be about, you know, personal family. So I had, it was a, it was a huge accomplishment for myself. I 
consider it my greatest accomplishment. I don't know how I got through it, you guys. Like, I really don't know how I well, did no, this. Well, no, but that's something really, really important, I think, because frequently, you know, if a, especially if a child of a celebrity who wants to uh, maintain that celebrity's aura or right. their, you know, their legend, et cetera, Maybe there's some things that are still in the house that we're going to keep to ourselves. Is how a lot of people, I think, would approach it. But right, no. you, you spoke about everything. I did. There, it's funny because if there are, if there are secrets that I'm not exposing, they're just not mine to tell. It's nothing that would actually make my father look bad. It's mm -hmm. stuff that would, if really, if they knew, he would look a lot better. Mm -hmm. But they're, you know, and I, and I address that sometimes. Like, you know, some of these aren't mine to tell, but they're not really um, about my dad per se. It's him protecting other people. So other, daddy lived his life like an open book. You know, even when he was with my mother, he was married, so mm -hmm. he didn't hide her. Um, he didn't, he, there's nothing that the world will ever really find out about him in, um, that he didn't already show to the world in that, in that regard. But his, I think just the, how we are at home and around the house and the struggles he was dealing with and the worries and the concerns he had, he was a human being like anyone else and he wasn't afraid to share it or show it. He would cry, uh, you know, and, and not be embarrassed by it. He didn't boo-hoo, but you know, tears would fall. Yeah. He would see a homeless family, he would cry, you'd see a tear and I'd look around and say, oh, daddy's crying, there must be something around that made him sad or made him happy. Mm -hmm. And he didn't run and, you know, a lot of men are afraid to show their emotions and I always thought that true strength is being able to own it and express it and not, you know, be, to be comfortable with all your emotions. And that's how my father was. So he was very affectionate, very open with everything, his life, his feelings. And in the book, I tried to show that side of him because you know he was struggling with a lot. If he should come back and fight Larry Holmes at a time when he just retired, he knew something wasn't right with his health, but he couldn't put his finger on it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they thought he had Parkinson's syndrome when it was really the disease, you know? So he was fighting his last fights, even Spinks fights, he had Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So people think, oh, he's just older and mature. And he just spoke so quickly and so fast that when he starts slowing down, it looked like he was just talking at a regular speed, but really he was slowing down. And then it got to the point to where you couldn't deny it, you know? So yeah. even me as a little girl, I knew, like I'd see him stumble. Mm -hmm. I'd find him sleeping on the couch or sofa outside on the front porch when we came home. And uh, in the morning, woke up in the morning because he didn't want to disturb anyone and ring the doorbell if he lost his keys. So daddy would just sleep on the sofa outside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, he had this weird thing with not waking people. I mean, if someone was taking a nap, you know, sh it could be a stranger. We could be waiting for a flight in the private room and some stranger is asleep on the sofa and he'll tell us to shh if he sees that someone's trying to rest. So he had this thing about not disturbing people about sleeping and, and sharing his food. Like if he was eating, it doesn't matter who you are, he would just start handing you fruit from his plate, you know? So mm -hmm. <laughs> when we used to go eating in restaurants, he would get up when he gets to walk around or we'd, I'd help him and he would have pre-signed autographs and he'd just start passing them off with a toothpick, toothpick in one inside of his mouth and just, here you go, going table to table, <laughs> passing out. Thank you, Muhammad Ali, thank you. <laughs> he didn't even wait. Wait, Daddy was so down to earth. It's like there was no way you can't just share him with the world that he always belonged to and just gave himself to fully. You know, so it was, yeah, I share a lot of stuff. Even some things that are probably shock people in there that are a little personal, but I thought, you know, my dad lived his life like an open book. Everyone, the world was family to him. He mm -hmm. loved people. You know, I think that's a wonderful note to leave it on because that, I think, encapsulates really what the story was. I want to thank you so much for taking the time thank to you join for us. Me. This was really such a great book. Thank you. And it's such, again, a different look at a man that we all think that we know. Thank you.